Uh, I've been spending a lot of time in the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, you could get there if you have a text today. Uh, and there's a lot of similarities we find between Corinthians and the state where I live, California, right? This ancient city of Corinth where the church was that Paul wrote this letter to and the state of California. I happen to pastor two churches at the moment, one in the city of Folsom and one in the city of Santa Rosa, which is uh, the North Bay, really, of San Francisco. And, and you see what's going on in California and you go, holy cow, this feels a lot like Corinth. As a matter of fact, some people even called the book of First Corinthians the book of First Californians, which is uh, sort of fitting. So is it all right if we do a little background? Can I just sort of set the table? Can I do that? Kind of a seminary level look at the city of Corinth. You all right with that? Can I do this? First of all, where the heck is Corinth? We have this map right here. There's the city of Corinth right there. Uh, and you notice that Greece is sort of bifurcated into two different parts. There's a North Greece and a South Greece. And the delineator between North Greece and South Greece is this little tiny neck of land. Do you remember geography class? What do they call one of those little tiny necks of land across a body of water? Isthmus. That's exactly right. It is an isthmus. And so Corinth is located on that tiny little isthmus that creates the bridge between North Greece and South Greece. Now, that neck of land, anybody know how wide that is across that thing? It's 3.5 miles across that neck of land from the Corinthian Gulf to the Saronic Gulf. It's 3.5 miles. But, watch this, if you have to sail around from the Corinthian Gulf all the way around, anyone know how far that is all the way around? It's 250 miles. So back in Paul's day, if you were in the shipping business, if you were moving cargo or people or selling wares port to port, wouldn't it have been a whole lot easier to cut across that 3.5 mile neck of land instead of sailing all the way around 250 miles to get from one side to the other? So, so there's this distance factor, absolutely. But there was also this very serious danger factor that was in play. Uh, at the very, very bottom, you actually can't see it on this map, but at the very bottom of the Peloponnesian Peninsula there, uh, there's a cape, it's called Cape Malaya. And there was a saying in ancient times that before you ever set sail around Cape Malaya, you'd better have your will filled out because it was very dangerous. The storms there were killer. The way the currents worked there uh, were brutal. The winds, killer, killer, killer. Many, many, many ancient sailors and ships lost their lives and their ships off the Cape of Malaya. So they actually tried in the ancient world to figure out a way to connect one side of that isthmus with the other side by way of a canal three and a half miles across if they could just carve a canal 3.5 miles all these problems were but they couldn't get it done a guy named alexander the great ever heard of him uh he thought about it couldn't get it done a guy named julius caesar ever heard of him he thought about it couldn't get it done uh, caesar nero actually tried it in the year 67 a.d but none of them succeeded, and it took all the way, anybody know what year this was? 1893, they finally got that canal complete. You can go, we actually have a, a photo, there it is right there. 1893, they actually got that thing done. You can sail right across it now. They carved those cliffs out. I've been there, I've stood there, I've seen all that. Now, obviously, you can't take a massive ship across there. It's not wide enough, but many boats can and do traverse that very quick, 3.5 miles across. Now, in ancient times, because the canal across the isthmus thing didn't happen, they invented this ingenious method, this cart 
that they would drag underneath the boats and then they would literally roll the boats across by land that 3.5 miles. This was critical that they accomplished this because Corinth was obviously, if you go back to the map, at the crossroads of north and south and, and east and west. And with this newfound method of carting boats across that east-west route made Corinth a massive trading hub in all of the Mediterranean. It was a major, inter- so it was a trading hub. It was also a major entertainment hub. Now, some of their entertainment was good. Some of their entertainment was bad. Does that sound familiar? That sound like Hollywood these days, right? Uh, on the positive side, you've heard of the ancient Olympic Games. Who's heard of the Olympics? Everybody, everybody uh, uh, some of you aren't awake yet, but yes, you've heard of the Olympics, most of you. Those were the largest athletic competitions in the ancient world. But the second largest athletic competition in the ancient world was the Ithmian Games, they called them, which took place in the city of Corinth, which is a fantastic celebration of athleticism and so incredible levels of competition. There was a dark side, a seedy side to the city's entertainment offerings, though, as well. Uh, In Corinth, as with many ancient cities, there was uh, above and behind the city, what they would call, does anybody know what it's called? Above and behind a city in ancient Greece would have been called what? The Acropolis, right? So in Corinth, it would have been called the Acro-Corinth. At the top of the Acro-Corinth was the temple to the goddess of love. Her name is Aphrodite. That's exactly right. One scholar in the house today. And, and upwards of, get this, a thousand priestesses slash prostitutes lived there in and around that temple. And at night, all 1,000 of those temple priestesses and prostitutes, they would descend down from the Acrocorinth into the city of Corinth. Uh, What happens up there later is really cool. You'll hear about that in a minute. And they would descend to the city to peddle their services to all the business travelers, all the residents of the city, all to benefit the coffers of the temple of Aphrodite. So the city of Corinth, as you can hear, they had everything, literally, except a church. And man, did Corinth, the city of ancient Corinth, needed a church. And, and you just think about that sort of cultural context that they're living in, right? And people say these days, like, holy cow, our society, well, the, it, it is really deteriorating, isn't it, right? Everything is getting so very bad. But in your town, for example, you don't have a thousand temple prostitutes descending into the city every So we think things were just bad now. You go back a couple thousand years and they were probably worse. And, and people think, oh, it would have been so much easier to live my faith as a follower of Jesus Christ a couple thousand years ago. It actually would probably have been just as difficult, if not more so, than it is right now. The pressure that, that you face now was the same then. The temptation that we face now was the same then. Maybe even more so in your face than what we deal with today. So, if that's the backdrop to the book of 1 Corinthians, this church, once it started, faced myriad troubles, in large part because of what was going on around them in the culture of the day. This stuff was creeping into this brand new church, and the genesis of the church in Corinth was that the Apostle Paul uh, hit the continent of Europe at a place called Philippi. He stayed there for a little while. He planted a church in Philippi. Then he made his way to a city uh, called Athens. 
where, by the way, not many people responded to the gospel in the city of Athens. He left Athens and he came to the city of Corinth where he spent, by the way, the second longest amount of time that he spent anywhere. Paul spent three years in the city of Ephesus, starting the church in Ephesus. And then he came to Corinth and he spent 18 months in the city of Corinth. What was he doing? He was making disciples. He was sharing the gospel. He was literally just like happened here. How many years ago, Adam? How old is Nair right now? How many years ago? 12 years ago, you planted this church. That's exactly what Paul was doing in the city of Corinth. Now, a show of hands if you know what an attitude is. Does anybody know what an attitude Did anybody have any this morning? Raise your hand if you have. Yeah. Oh, I see that. Yeah, I see that back there. Now, raise your hand if you believe that attitudes are powerful forces in people's lives. Raise your hand if you believe. Yeah, you, you are the right people. If you raise your hand, you're right. You who didn't raise your hand, you are wrong or, or just not paying attention. So I heard a story about a guy who got a parrot uh, for his birthday. And uh, this parrot was beautiful, uh, but it was a full-grown parrot. It came to him full-grown, and it came to him with a terrible attitude. This parrot had a terrible attitude, a horrible vocabulary. Every other word was an expletive. If it wasn't an expletive, everything the parrot said was at, at the very least incredibly rude. And this guy tried so hard to change the parrot's attitude, was constantly speaking life to the parrot, playing worship music for the parrot. Anything that came to mind that might change the parrot's attitude, nothing worked. One time he yelled at the parrot, but it only got worse from there. Finally, in a moment of sheer desperation, he grabbed the parrot and shoved it into the deep freezer. Shut the door. And for a few minutes, uh, the bird squawked, kicked, screamed, and then all of a sudden, the parrot just went totally silent. And the guy freaked out. He's like, oh no, I might have actually hurt the bird. The PETA people might be showing up at my home very soon. So he ran open, he opens up the freezer door, and the parrot very calmly Uh, steps out onto the guy's extended arm and said, I'm so sorry that I offended you with my words and my actions. Would you please forgive me? I promise I will do so much better. And the the guy's just astounded at this remarkable change in attitude. And, And he was about to inquire of the parrot what so suddenly changed when the parrot very meekly inquired of his owner, may I ask what the chicken did? And isn't it just true that so much of the course of a person's life is determined by our attitude, isn't it? As one guy, lots of you have probably heard this quote, as one guy very eloquently put it, I don't have it on screen, I'm sorry about that. It goes like this, the longer I live, the more I realize the impact of attitude on life. Attitude to me is more important than facts, more important than the past, more important than education, than money, than circumstances, than failures, than successes, than what other people think or say, or do. It's more important than appearance, giftedness, or skill. It will make or break a company, make or break a church, make or break a home, make or break a marriage, make or break a family. And the remarkable thing is that we have a choice every single day regarding the attitude that we will embrace for that day. We can't change our past. We cannot change the fact that people will act in certain ways. We can't change the inevitable. The only thing we can do is play on the one single string we have which is our attitude. And here's the punchline. I'm convinced that life is 10% what happens to me 
and 90% how I react to it. And so it is with you. We are in charge of our attitudes. And the church in the ancient city of Corinth needed a massive attitude adjustment in the biggest way possible. This letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to them that we've come to call 1 Corinthians, at its core is Paul's attitude adjustment letter to the church. He's got a whole bunch of stuff that he needs to teach them. Yes. He has a whole bunch of stuff that they were totally missing the boat on that he needed to correct about the church. But before he could get to any of that stuff, he had to deal with their deep-seated heart attitudes because he knows, Paul knows the same thing that we all know. You can't change anything unless and until your heart changes first. If you've got a Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we're going to go near the very end. We're going to extend into chapter 2 because as you all know, the, the, the chapter breaks. Paul did not write the chapter breaks in. He didn't say, oh, I've reached the end of chapter. Those were put in much later. And so it all sort of runs together. You'll see what we're doing here. So he starts in verse 26, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And he addresses, how does he address them? What's he say? You see it there? What's he say? Brothers and sisters, he starts with. Brothers. And so what's, what's Paul doing there? So he's addressing this church that's having myriad attitude issues, behavior issues, church issues. The place was mayhem. And he calls them out, brothers and sisters. And what he's doing is he's actually helping them elevate their view of the church, isn't he? And he's actually doing the very same thing with us. When we call each other brother and sister, this isn't just your church, narrate isn't the uh, worldwide body of Jesus Christ, church of Jesus Christ, is not just some loose association of random people. The church is family, real family. The church is body. We are brothers and sisters. The church in Corinth as misbehaving and as off the rails as they were running, they were his brothers and sisters, brother and sister to each other. And look at what he does next. He says, think of what you were when you were called. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you... What's he, what's he talking about there by that word called? He's talking about their before Christ days. Do you ever refer to those? Ever go like my BC days, my before Christ? Do you remember what you were in your before Christ, think about what your life was before you met Jesus. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose, verse 27, the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. And so it was with me into chapter two, brothers and sisters. He does it again. Again, elevating their view. When I came to you, I didn't come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. He's talking about the founding of the church, the launching of the church. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except who? Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. We do, verse six, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age, nor the rulers of this age, not the wisdom of Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, not the wisdom of this age, who are coming to nothing, he says. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden, that God has destined for our glory before time 
began, the mystery Paul's talking about, there's the scriptures. It's the Bible. It's the text of God. Verse 8, none of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. They didn't get it. They missed him. However, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived, watch this, the things that God has prepared for those who love him, these are the things God has revealed to us by his spirit. So here's the question we want to answer today, is how do you set about actually changing your attitudes? How do you move from a place of chronic bad attitude to an attitude that actually pleases? How do you get there? Four things we're going to step through today. If you're taking notes, you could write this in. Number one is this. It all begins with a personal encounter, or you might say a personal re-encounter with Jesus himself. Brothers and sisters, Paul writes, think of what you were when you were called. Think of what you were when you were called. It's because of him that you're in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. What Paul's trying to do here is he's addressing Christians who sometimes Christians, probably no one in this church, probably no one in this room, but sometimes after people have been walking with Jesus, they've been a Christian for some period of time, they, they think that their relationship with Jesus has gotten a, a bit sophisticated, right? Like after a person has been a Christian for a bit of time, they get a little big for their britches, they get a little full of themselves, they think they have it all figured out, they think, watch this, that they're a little bit better than all of those other Christians. They might even think that they've got some inside track on the capital T truth, and Paul's just leveling them out, going like, knock it off. Just knock all of that superiority, anything that you think you are better than anybody else, just knock it off, and, and, and what he does, he says, remember where you came from. Just remember where you came from. Remember how Jesus saved you, Paul says. He's reminding them that we've all, every person on planet earth, have done things that blot our record with God. Our sin, my sin, causes me, us, we, every human on planet earth, to fall short of the perfect standard of God. And, and the thing is, God can't just simply wink at our sin and go like, oh yeah, it, it's okay. He cannot do that. Yes, God loves you entirely and totally and completely and perfectly. He pursues you indefinitely, yet at the same time, God's justice requires that he do something about my sin problem, that he do something about the human condition, which is precisely why Jesus Christ came. It's exactly why he died. It's exactly why he rose from the dead, to set the sin problem of humanity square and right. And, and our good deeds, we try to earn this stuff sometimes, don't we? We go like, all my good deeds all my church attendance, all my I haven't done anything that bad offerings, as good as we might think all of that is, will not ever rise to the standard of our holy, perfect, righteous God. It can't get there. Only Jesus is able to span that chasm, God and us. And here's the other thing. Merely hearing about that, and lots of people hear this all the time. They're like, yeah, 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 I know, I know, I know. I get it, I get it. I've heard it, I've heard the gospel, I know. I'm over here, God's over here, Jesus, Bridget. I know all the, but merely hearing it doesn't do a single person a single bit of good. 
It actually requires that we do something about it, which is to connect that truth of who God is and what Jesus did with faith, and it's like hooking two live wires together. You hook that truth with a little bit of faith, and it's like hooking two live wires. Something amazing happens. You encounter Jesus, or maybe for some of us, you re-encounter Jesus, because you did that way back when, and it was back in the day, and you did this thing, and you prayed this prayer, and here's the key to all this. You can write this down if you're taking notes. Self-help is always inferior to sovereign help, isn't it? Self-help is always inferior to sovereign, because you see, nothing about righteousness or holiness or redemption is able to be obtained on our, we cannot, try as we might, to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and get to it. We can't just try harder. We can't just work harder. We can't get up earlier, stay up later. I'm just gonna claw more for it, more and more. It has to come from where? Outside of us. Only available in and through and from God himself. And all we do is go, God, thank you. I receive this ever gratefully. How do you change your attitude? Well, it starts with personally encountering Jesus or maybe for some of us, re-encountering Jesus. Number two, it moves to this place humbly elevate how do you change your attitude humbly elevate jesus chapter 2 verses 1 and 2 i didn't come with eloquence or human wisdom paul says for i resolved to know nothing and i did a little research on the word nothing and the word nothing in the greek you know what it means nothing it literally means nothing while i was with you except jesus christ and him crucified uh, anybody have a guess about how many McDonald's there are in America? Anybody got a guess? How many McDonald's do you think exist in the United States of America today? Any idea? Just hazard a guess. Don't, don't be shy. Come on. What was the number? Eight? Did someone say 18,000? Did you just Google it real quick? Uh, you're, you're, you're relatively close. There's, there's about 14,000 McDonald's in the United States of America. 14,000 McDonald's. Anybody know how many churches there are in the United States of America today? Let's call it about 350,000. Almost 14,000 McDonald's, about 350,000 churches in America. Yet, wouldn't you agree that most people walking around on planet Earth today, they think that McDonald's is more relevant to their life than the church is? Would you agree? And why is that? I, I think Paul's getting to it in this text. He's saying, look, you, the church in Corinth, and I dare say a bunch of the church today are trying to mix the philosophy of the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, here's what was going on in Corinth. It's surrounded by this polytheistic culture, these supposed, I call them little G gods, these supposed gods. They had the litany of Greek gods. They had the pantheon of Roman gods. And are those really gods? Were they real? No, 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 they, they weren't. They were stone or wood statues. They're fake. Those are fake gods. They're not God at all. They do nothing. They sit there. They collect. They're not living. They're not breathing. They're not moving. They collect dust doing nothing. And the temptation for the church in Corinth, and it wasn't just the temptation, they had given themselves plunge headlong into this, was to sprinkle a little bit of that polytheistic culture in with Jesus to make the church and make the gospel a wee bit more appealing to people. If we just, if we just sort of play on this stuff that people are stepping out of and if we, we just sprinkle a little bit of that in with a little bit, and Paul just draws a hard red line in the sand. And he's like, don't, no, no, no way. I didn't come with eloquence or human wisdom, 
For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He says, look, church, it's Jesus. It's just Jesus. It's him and him only, what he did and everything we do and everything we say and everything we are ought not mix anything in with the pure, unadulterated birth, life, death, burial, resurrection, and reign of Jesus. That's it. Nothing more and nothing. And here's the key to this. Write this down. Jesus doesn't need our help in becoming more appealing. He does not need our help in becoming more appealing. He just, he, he's God for crying. He doesn't need our help. And here's a bit of a spoiler. Paul plants this church in Corinth. He stayed there, like I said, for 18 months, and then he left, and when he left, stuff started to deteriorate a bit. They were a mess. They were divided. They were in conflict. Uh, there's actually a place in the book of 1 Corinthians where, where Paul says, your worship services do more harm than good. Imagine, imagine that. Like You show up here, and you're like, man, this is, this is great. Well, in Corinth, they were showing up for church, and it was inflicting more harm on people than doing good. It's a disaster. So Paul writes this letter to help straighten them out. He writes 2 Corinthians to help straighten them out some more. Did you actually know that Paul wrote three letters to the church in Corinth? Did you know this? Paul wrote three letters to the church in Corinth. If you go look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, you can do this on your own. He, wrote, he references a letter prior to 1 Corinthians. Some scholars actually call that letter the severe letter, which is kind of hard to imagine. If you read 1 Corinthians, it's pretty darn severe. Could there have been a letter more severe than 1 Corinthians? It sounds like there was. There was another letter. We don't have it. It didn't make the canonical cut. It's lost. We don't know what happened to it. I've been looking for it for a long time. I can't find it. So here's the thing. What we actually call 1 Corinthians is really second. Grab your Bible right now and scratch out the word 1 Corinthians and put 2 Corinthians, turn over to 2 Corinthians, and put 3 Corinthians, just some freebie stuff, no charge for any of that stuff. Here's the point. The church in Corinth received Paul's admonitions. He's just trying to shove them back on, he's exhorting them back on track. It took him three letters. They're a little slow to learn, kind of like me, actually. But his correction worked. They got back to the right stuff of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and get this, the church in Corinth actually exploded in the best way. It absolutely took off. People were meeting Christ all over the place. They were growing in their faith all over the place. Watch this. Within 75 years of this letter from Paul, 1 Corinthians, the temple of Aphrodite was taken over by Christians. A church was launched up there on the Acropolis that was formerly crawling with temple prostitutes and it didn't take mixing anything with Jesus it was just Jesus it was just Jesus he doesn't need our help holy cow we got to hurry up number three it goes from here how do you change your attitude you fully engage Jesus fully engage Jesus chapter 2 verse 6 we do however speak a message of wisdom among the mature not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing Paul's announcing look the gospel is the wisdom of God and the gospel is the revelation of God and the gospel is impossible to have been invented by a human mind. In other words, human beings could not have cooked up the gospel of Jesus Christ if they had tried to. Human beings, most of us, if we're left to invent a system of belief, we would begin with what? We would begin with the goodness 
of human beings, wouldn't we? We would say, well, we're all basically good people, and if we're just left to our goodness for long enough, you'll eventually make your way to God by doing enough good stuff. We'll just appease and please our way to God. Who in the world is going to come up with a system of belief that says that human beings are sinners by nature and choice, that there's a depravity of the human condition, and that only by believing in a dead and risen Galilean Savior who just so happened to be the one and only Son of God will you gain redemption. It's only the wisdom of God. Humanity has no possible way of putting all of that together, and which here's where that meets our life. You're like, okay, yeah, I, I get that. Here's where that meets our life. It means we can't just add a little Jesus to our already pretty good life and think that we've made it. Do you know what I'm talking about? Kind of like over at the, the, the Starbucks or your favorite coffee shop, they say, do you want a dollop of whipped cream on top of your latte, right? Would you, would you like a dollop of whipped cream on top of your, we say latte at our house. That's the right way to say it in case you're wondering. <laughs> Not actually, but I just like saying it that way. A dollop of whipped cream, on, and we do that with Jesus in our life. My life is going along pretty darn well. I've pretty well got it together. I'm not doing anything that bad, and I'm going to pray this prayer, and I'm going to put this fire insurance policy in my back pocket just because I want to go to the good place. I don't want to go to the bad place, and my life is pretty good. Jesus whipped cream on top of everything good that I've got going, and Paul says, no way. That's not how this works. God says, no way. That's not how this works. God makes a complete and total and entire rearrangement of everything that you are and everything that you have and everything that you will be. He disrupts everything, upends everything. And the way up is actually the way down and the way down is actually the way up. And here's the key. Please, whatever you do when it comes to your Christian faith, do not just pass the class. It isn't just about the minimum entrance requirements to get into heaven when you die. That's not what this is all about. Do not just pass the class. Please master the message of everything that it is to know and follow Jesus. The entire message, not just a little bit of the message, all of the message, the entirety of the message. Uh, Paul uses this word mature in verse 6. Interestingly, the Greek root of that word is the very same word that Jesus used when he hung on the cross and he said these words, it is, what did he say? Finished. Paul, that is the same Greek word that Paul uses that Jesus, it's actually finished. We all know the starting place of the Christian life is to cross the line of faith in Jesus Christ, to believe in him. You put the truth of what Jesus did for you, you hook it to the little bit of faith, it's like hooking two live wires together and you start there, but it goes so much further. It's a journey and it goes deeper and it's meant to go deeper and it's meant to go farther. It's a lifelong journey of faith that takes us deeper and we're ever growing, ever maturing, ever being finished, according to Paul. Don't just pass the class, please. Master the message. Get it all. Set your roots down deep. Number four, we're going to finish with this one. Adam's going, good thing. We're going to finish with this one. Uh, joyfully expect Jesus. Number four. Chapter two, verse nine, Paul writes this. However, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived, the things that God has prepared for those who what? 
who love him. Who aren't just thinking about the minimum entrance requirements to get into heaven when I die. Yeah, I prayed that prayer once. I've got my fire insurance shoved in my back pocket. I'm good. Here's the key. Hope is actually the fuel of endurance. Hope in what Jesus did. Hope in what's coming. A couple of weeks ago, I was down in Orange County, Southern California. I was leading the memorial services uh, for my friend and a friend of our family. Her name was Barbara Dark. And I don't know exactly how you define hero, but in my book, Barbara Dark was an absolute hero. She was actually the headline of the Orange County Register just a couple of Sundays back. Uh, Barbara was a nurse who at 71 years old was still working full-time caring for who? COVID patients. And it was rough. But Barbara was so incredibly awesome. Barbara would go to work every single day and she had to ride an elevator to to get to the floor that she uh, worked on. And she'd be in that elevator with all of her nurse colleagues, most of whom she had trained in the entire hospital. She had been at that hospital for over 30 years. Uh, By the way, at her memorial services, uh, a doctor actually stood up and said, you know, uh, Barbara certainly trained almost all of the nurses in this hospital. But he said, on behalf of all of the physicians in this hospital, uh, we have to be honest and say she trained us too. It was a beautiful thing. She would ride that elevator up and the elevator would stop on the floor that they're going to get out on, and she'd have a, a whole load of fellow nurses in there. And, and here's what she'd say every day before she left that elevator. Can you believe that we get to go love and serve people for Jesus today? And she'd take this great big breath, and she'd straighten her back, and she, right before the, the doors would open, she would say, showtime. And she would put a smile on her face, and she'd step out and off to work. She was the hands and feet of Jesus day in and down. And one day, Barbara caught COVID from a COVID patient that she was taking care of. And she got sick, and she fought valiantly for about seven weeks in the hospital, and on Labor Day, she went home to be with Jesus. It's my view that Barbara is a hero. And if Barbara were here today, uh, she would tell you the very thing that Paul writes about in this text. That you can't even imagine what's coming in eternity when you know and follow Jesus And she would also tell you that the invitation exists for you to believe and to live and experience that very same thing that she's living today. Just keep loving him, she would say. Just keep loving him. Don't quit. Don't give up. Don't give in. Don't stop. Don't throw in the towel. Don't get distracted by all the stuff around you. Just love and pursue and follow and get to know Jesus. Could I just invite you to close your eyes and bow your heads if you would? Because here's the thing. Today, if your heart is open, you can place your hope and trust and faith and everything that Jesus did on the cross for you and for me. And it's, it's very simple. It's not complicated. It's not difficult. You can make that transaction by praying to him, Jesus, I invite you to pray if that's you. I believe you're my savior. Thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross, for rising from the dead, for forgiving my sin. I put my faith in you for all of this life, the life that is to come with you Grow me deeper in you, Jesus. And if that's you today, I'm going to call you out. I just want to say, 
don't leave this place without telling somebody here that you've made that decision today, please. That's the single biggest decision a human being will ever make in their entire lives. Tell somebody. Say, I made that decision to cross the line of faith. Help me grow. Tell somebody. Just tell somebody. God in heaven, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much that a couple thousand years ago, Paul penned a letter to a church in the ancient city of Corinth that has incredible relevance to us here today. God, I pray that we would live those very things out, that we just wouldn't walk in here and go, oh, this was nice, and heard it, uh, sang nice songs, and heard a nice message, an interesting message, and then leave and be the same, Lord, but that we would be different, that our attitude would be changed, that our heart would be more inclined toward you. We would be more devoted to you, growing deeper with you. God, would you make us a transformed people that create a transformed church that in turn transforms lives of the people all around us, Jesus. We love you, we worship you, we celebrate you, and it's in Jesus' risen name that we pray. Everybody agreed together and said, amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Narrate Church, find us online at narratechurch.org or look us up on Facebook or Instagram. 